this is uh, kind of interesting for me as this series is 14, 15 parts long, but as we're moving into the Holy Days, the things that we're discussing, uh, the faith, the mystery of the faith last time and what we will discuss today and next week seem to fit right in, in line with what um, uh, the Holy Days stand for and, and aspects of it that we should be mindful of as we move toward them. I wanted you to know that was not my plan, that just kind of happened that way, that probably God's plan. I also uh, I don't need to convince you that the institution of traditional marriage is being beaten up pretty badly today, uh, perhaps like never before. But it may take uh, some work on my part to convince you that that institution of God's design for traditional marriage will never die. And I want you to be encouraged in that today, that no matter what you see, how you see it abused, uh, this will go on forever, this concept of marriage. I want to talk about this today. Human society in general uh, has never really understood the sanctity and purpose of God's design for marriage. Uh, and abuses of it litter human history. And also, uh, it litters biblical history as well. Lots of bad examples in the scriptures where individuals who came together without any understanding of what God expected for that Holy Union. Very few today have, have understood, or over time have understood, the full potential of marriage. And we do not need statistics to see that today. Yeah, I, as I was researching this, I thought I would bring you some statistics because that's, I'm an analyst, that's what I do. But they're getting harder and harder to find. Finding truthful data on marriage and divorce rates is becoming next to impossible. Some states, you may not know this, but some states don't even bother to report divorce rates anymore, and that list is growing. Uh, but we can make some assumptions by what we see around us, okay? When, when human institutions sanction marriages of people to animals, we should see man does not understand the purpose of marriage. When we see those same institutions of men, human institutions, uh, sanction marriages of people to pillows, marriages of people to buildings, Marriages of people to even roller coasters. These are sanctioned marriages that have taken place in our country, sometimes the UK. It's safe to say that recognizing these things shows us that humanity does just not understand God's holy purpose for marriage. But even those who hold to more traditional views of marriages show that their, their, their ignorance or defiance of God's design for his holy institution. I've even seen this in the church. I've counseled people before marriage and after marriage. And what I've seen is that unless a, a couple is truly counseling to see and understand the sobriety, the seriousness of what they're getting into and God's intent and design for it, and they embrace that, then those are that's going to – their ideas of separation will remain with them well into their marriage. And unfortunately, it just increases uh, divorce rates. Um, some people are rejoicing that the U.S. divorce rate has been dropping over the past 40 years, and, and this is true. They are now, divorce rates in our country are now at their lowest level since 1970, and at first you'd look at that and go, yay, great. But the single contributing factor to that is marriage rates are now at their lowest levels ever and have been dropping at a more rapid pace in that same period of time. People just aren't marrying anymore. In 1960, 72% of those 18 and older were married. 
In 2016, only 50%. And five years later, it's even less. Most couples today choose simply to cohabit rather than to marry. So much so, uh, that has been, cohabitation has increased at a 400% level over the past 40 years. And though they break up at a much higher rate than those who marry, 86% of our country thinks cohabitation is a good idea. Good idea. Only 14% of the nation think it's not a good idea, even though everything tells us they are very unstable and unhappy unions. So as fewer are being married, fewer are being divorced. You want to celebrate that news of the divorce rate. That's great, but you should see what the contribution is and the, and the uh, direction is not good. Most do not even consider that marriage belongs to God anymore. Uh, and, and few, even the religious, know how to see his blessing before uh, entering, understand it, learn about it, and strive to ask him to bless their union. The, the loudest detractors of marriage today are those who have failed miserably at it or have been raised in families that have failed miserably at it for all of the reasons uh, we've discussed And even those who believe marriage is a godly institution appear to fare no better. As divorce rates in the Church of God mirror those of the world we live in, it is clear that some of this approach from the outside has creeped into the church and making a travesty of what God made holy. Many in the church don't understand uh, the depth of the mystery of marriage. Today's scholarship and expertise has very deceptively conditioned most into viewing marriage in an evolutionary light. You may not believe in evolution, or you may be of those who kind of blend Genesis 1 and 2 with some ideas of evolution, and you think that's justified. But we had a Bible study a couple, three months ago that shows that those things are not allegory. Genesis 1 is not an allegory. It's not a metaphor of something else that may have happened over billions of years. There's no blending those two at all, uh, but some try. This this is moving into the church. It's moving into people's understanding of godly institutions, and we see this in marriage. It's viewed in an evolutionary light, though you may not believe in evolution. Um, marriage is considered an invention of ever-evolving human society over that period of time. And few have an issue with reinventing it, whereas others want to destroy it. Today it's being uh, lambasted by those who want to destroy it. It's called a, a failed, racist, homophobic tool of exclusion and oppression by many groups today. Clearly God's purpose for marriage is a mystery to humanity. Let's turn to Ephesians 5 here. We'll come back and look at this uh, in much more detail uh, later. But right now, I just want to read Paul's description here and comment on this. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. This whole section from uh, verse 21 to 22, he's talking about... um, Uh, walking circumspectly before that with respect to the Christian walk. And he moves into this discussion of marriage, clearly talking to husbands and wives here. 
And then he makes a comparison at the end. Verse 31, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's taken from Genesis 2, verse 24, or 20, 18 through 24. We'll go there in a moment to re- review that more in, um, uh, in depth. Verse 32, though, is the one I want to focus on. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. A great mystery. Now, some, I've read some commentaries that say that Paul, the mystery that Paul is describing here or is referring to is the unique marital bond relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. But who would ever understand the significance of that special relationship without uh, knowing and respecting God's design for marriage in the first place? Clearly, this connection is also a mystery, that what God seeks in human marriage points to what the relationship that Jesus Christ shares with his bride. And that model, that template, should be looked at for, by everyone who understands that in their own marriage, their own relationship. Who would ever approach their marriage with this very special relationship as the template for their union if they didn't understand the connection between the two? Both are a mystery. I chose to see it as one mystery, though, uh, it, because it it speaks to the same concept, marriage itself. Uh, this mystery is revealed to only a few in this age. This is the eighth message that I'm giving in this series on the mysteries of God. The first one was in, an intro that the seven cents have been on individual points that we've discussed, the, the mysteries of God himself. Uh, the mystery of his will, his wisdom, his Christ, uh, the mystery of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and last time we covered the mystery of the faith, which is the faith of Christ in us. With each of these, we've learned how special these revelations are and why so few understand them and aspire to live by them. Today we will review this mystery of marriage. Let's turn back to Genesis 1 here. There are three aspects that people do not understand, uh, even professing believers, even some within the church don't understand the implications of these things, in which case it hinders their ability to understand the implication and the importance of marriage, human marriage, and what it depicts. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, is something we need to remind ourselves of all the time, which is missed by most of those uh, who profess Christianity. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God, the word is singular, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, uh, man and woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is being rebelled against by most of uh political and scholastic thought today, a silly premise that somehow man is supposed to have dominion over the earth. 
when I say man, I mean humanity, man and woman, both. He said this to both of them. What we should take from this section here right up front as we study the rest of the Bible and live our lives by it is that God is one spiritually, one, but two persons in essence. We know those two persons to be God who became the Father when Jesus Christ became his Son, and the Logos who became Jesus Christ. They have lived eternally together as one, one being God, in complete agreement and unison and love and very, very deep and committed devotion to one another. A beautiful relationship where if we understand what God's doing here, he's recreating himself. Um, he has to create an environment for those made in his image so they can live as he and Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, now live today and have always lived. Two persons in essence, a loving eternal family into which humans are to be made part of. What's happening here is he's recreating himself Human beings are his offspring. We're not just made in his image physically. We are also supposed to be growing in his image spiritually, and we need an environment to do that. Humanity was made in God's image for a reason. We are his offspring. He is reproducing his kind. We are God kind. We're in the flesh now. We have limited life in this age, temporary physical existence. But he didn't intend that to be the only existence that we have. This means so much more than simply looking like them. When I say them, God the Father and Jesus the Christ now. Look at Genesis 2. We'll begin reading in verse 18 through verse 24. I love the way this is laid out. Before Eve is even created, Adam is shown his need by God, that there's an emptiness in him without a partner. Because that's the way the Godhead has always lived. They've always been together. How can man be alone? He says it's not good. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now remember, he said all things were good back at the end of Genesis 1. He sees this, though, as a, a, a not an addendum, always part of the plan, that man should not live alone. He says, I will make a helper comparable to him. And we've talked about this before. This is not a demeaning position. It, it is a helper. The word used here, ezer, E-Z-E-R, in Hebrew, is used 21 times in Scripture. 17 times it's applied to God himself. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle. This could have been by categorization. It's not a matter of uh, naming every individual one at that moment. Of course, it could have been. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. God wanted him to see this. And then a very special creation happened at this point. Everything else here is formed from the dust of the ground, not Eve. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, this helper comparable to him, made from his very bones. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Just as God is one in spirit, in order for man to replicate the life of the Godhead, he needed a partner. Now, no other form of life, whether it's plant or animal or even angel on the spiritual side, has been given the relationship of marriage and family. Yet we have taken it for granted. I I talk to too many who enter marriage with this idea that it's all just going to work out, it's all just going to happen, it's just that there's there's nothing we need to respect. We're going to have kids and they're going to raise themselves today. Uh, parents are actually encouraged to let children make their own choices at age three, two, three, four, five, and 6 when they have no capacity to be able to do that, no leadership from their parents. And we've seen what that has done generationally to our country. This is a very special relationship that God gave us. It's only shared by God the Father and Jesus Christ in the Godhead, and he's given it to us. Marriage was instituted by God at creation, but it is entered into very lightly by those who do not understand how important it is. And I I stress this even within the church of God. Marriage receives its authority from God and must be approached soberly and reverently in the fear of God. It belongs to him. He is a family, and he wants us to be family as he is. His design must be honored, though, for that union to be successful as a family. Now, like baptism, we've talked, I was talking to someone before services. Like baptism, we don't know all of our sins. When we approach baptism, God will reveal certain ones. And there certainly needs to be fruits meet for repentance. You know, stop doing things that are sinful that you know of, start keeping his Sabbath, start tithing, start keeping his holy days. All of these things that we must do, those are fruits meet for repentance. But those are the big things. The little things that we find out afterwards, which which we find out afterwards are actually really big things. Overcoming lust, overcoming pride, overcoming fear, overcoming foolishness. Those can't even be approached by somebody who can't make those initial steps. It's, it's next to impossible to, to even see those things as problems if all we're doing is looking at the very surface-level things. And it's the same thing with marriage. You can't know everything of, that you're going to need to know to be a good partner in marriage, okay, it, how to run the marriage perfectly. But there needs to be a due diligence in advance of making the commitment to God that you're going to follow through what he's requiring of you in this union you need to understand those things. There has to be great counsel with parents, ministry, your own personal Bible study. Research this. Understand how important this is before it's going to work. Or you're going to have to learn those things afterwards, after you say, I do. Civilization may have its own customs and laws respecting marriage. 
and we, we, we do our best to uh, comply with them. But God's elect base their understanding and practice of his holy institution um, on the foundation of his revelation, his word. And we have to be spiritually led in that. Marriage is a critical part of God's plan for humanity in this age and in the age to come. I'm saying it's going to exist forever. It will not be destroyed by what we see going on around us now. God, again, made us male and female. He designed us to be more together than either of us can be apart, just as the Godhead. When a husband and wife are united together, they are to be as one flesh. Well, the model for that is the oneness that God the Father shares with Jesus Christ in the Godhead. Um, They are to be together, one, unified. And this is not an easy thing to do in this age. This is not only physical, this reference to one flesh, but it is a spiritual unity. Again, just as the Godhead. Jesus upheld this. Let's look at Mark chapter 10 here. Lest we think this is simply an Old Testament idea. Mark chapter 10, we'll read verses, verses 1 through 11. Here he's being approached by those who are trying to trick him. But they, their concept and understanding of marriage was was uh, tiny, insignificant compared to the one they were talking to. Mark uh, chapter 10 and verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, And multitudes gathered to him, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. It's a very touchy subject today. And even, again, within the church, uh, when you speak about what God says about divorce, there are many people who are divorced who feel terrible, who feel like you're beating them up. That's not the case. A minister should never shy from teaching what God says in his word, no matter what we've been through. We certainly don't beat each other up for our past mistakes. We don't do that. And that should never happen from this lectern. But we need to learn. We are going to be those who teach others. If we don't know and understand or learn from our mistakes and successes in this age, how can we, how can we look forward to that? So they're testing him here. They're trying to trick him up and cause those who were following him to flee. Here's his answer. He answered and said to them, verse 3, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. In both of those, we'll we'll read this in Malachi 2 in a moment, but both of those approaches show a dismal understanding of what God had intended. Verse 5, And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, the inability for the Spirit and God's word to penetrate it and change it, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning, which we just read of creation, God made them male and female. Why? Why male and female? Wouldn't it have been simpler just to make one? Obviously, the difficulties we're having today with respect to the arguments between the sexes and the growing number of genders uh, in our country, in the world, it would have been a lot simpler. There's a reason for this. Verse 7, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Family from family. Godly families begetting godly families. You're going to find out that families in the church have done more than any of our publications or or any of our uh, uh, television broadcasts 
to influence others around us. Even the church itself is made up 60%, 70% of those who have been reared by those kinds of families within those kinds of unions. Verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh in God's eyes. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now in the house, his, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. Uh, because they were raised in an environment where this is just commonplace. And wow, this is really, you, you, you're saying they should remain committed for their life. Yeah. And that, that anvil should be hanging over their head when they make the decision to marry. There are no other options in God's eyes. That is a commitment for the rest of their lives. Until one dies, at least. That's the biblical description and standard for marriage. What we see around us today isn't anywhere close. And a lot of that has seeped in and affected us, though. Um, so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. That's pretty clear. Um, and he doesn't elaborate much. And he says the other side as well, verse 12, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He doesn't take it on anywhere beyond that. Now, we know from the scriptures that there are reasons. If an if a unbelieving husband leaves or abuses her wife and shows he's not pleased to dwell, according to 1 Corinthians 7, she's no longer bound. That contract has been violated and broken. And many of us have suffered through that. But there are also issues of fraud prior to the marriage where something is not disclosed or deliberately hidden that can annul the marriage. We know that. And we also understand that uh, sexual immorality, Christ said it himself, is a reason for divorce. But he's not elaborating on this here. He's talking about the relationship that God intended, and that needs to be our intent as we approach it, or even as we live in it. Jesus hallowed marriage in his teachings, a holy institution. He and his apostles taught that the institution, in order to work, must follow God's intention, must follow it. Because the mindset of divorce can just seep in and, and seem like a, a justifiable way out instead of working at it the way God wants us to. Malachi 2. Let's look at Malachi chapter 2 here. This is a not often read uh, or, or elaborated on a series of scriptures here in Malachi, but it's addressing the priests. Malachi was commissioned to address the priests in the church, which we are becoming, right? The kings and priests who will rule at Christ's side at his return. Let's begin reading uh, verse 10 here. We'll read through verse 16. Have we not all one Father? This, this beautiful concept of God as Father permeates the family relationship that we have here, that he's sharing with us and that we share with one another and need to value it as much as he does. Have we not all one Father? Has not uh, God, one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Look what he develops here now. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. What is this holy institution? Some could say it's the institution of Israel, the institution of the priesthood. It could be the institution of marriage, which we see. But if you look at the, if you look at the context here, what's he talking about? What does he lead into? What treachery is he referring to? 
the treachery of knowing, oh, I can marry anybody I want, and if it doesn't work out, I'll just give them a written notice of divorce and send them off. That's embedded in many of the minds of the world we live in today. Verse 11 again, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holy institution, the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. How has he done that? He has married the daughter of a foreign God, a foreign God, a strange God, a God that is not a God. Now, some will say, well, yeah, but they, they come from a Christian church and they they worship Jesus Christ. It, it, do they because they say so? Or because it's written in some formal document? Or are they doing something else? Are they worshiping someone else? Something else? When they don't do what God says, when they, when they don't understand or apply the word of God in practice, Christ tells them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, anomia, we got to keep God's law to be God's children. This is referring to anyone who violates that deliberately as a form of worship. Verse 13, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. The indication here is to say they're giving a written set of divorce papers to the wife of their youth, the one they first married and committed their lives to, so they can marry someone else, the daughter of a foreign god. Um, Between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, she is your companion and your wife by covenant, a covenant that we make with God with respect to our wives, gentlemen, and women, a covenant that you make with God, our Father, in respect of your husband. Most marriage ceremonies that you hear today aren't set up that way. The Church of God's is. Verse 15, But did not he make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? I have always, I have always, when I read this, I cannot stop thinking of this relationship between the bride of Christ and and Christ as husband and wife to be married and separate what we do in that practice from that from that incredible template a, a spiritual example so is, is the remnant of the spirit here does marriage carry with it the remnant of the way God and Jesus Christ live in the godhead and does it facilitate those spiritual connections I can't think otherwise. Um, did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? God seeks godly offspring. Now, certainly this is carried out in marriage by having children. But even if a marriage doesn't result in physical children, the two who are married will grow into godly offspring within that unit, within their union, and be ready to serve as Christ side as his bride at his return and be ready to live within the God family, understanding what it means to be one. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his 
youth, don't, don't do this. Understand the lifelong commitment you are making. Is that tough before you make it? You bet it is. And it's meant to be. Don't, don't. When we move away from that, we move away from God's design. Verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. That is not me saying that. That is not my opinion. This is the Lord God of Israel. He hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit again that you do not deal treacherously. We don't have to look around much much in, in the uh, descendants of Israel in this day and age uh, to see that broken families produce violence. I have heard people from other countries wondering, why are Americans so violent? I mean, why do we all want guns? And why are we all wanting to shoot one another when we have a dispute? And Where do you think that comes from? If somebody is raised or reared, I should say, in a family unit, a loving, caring, giving, sacrificing family unit, what do you think the likelihood of of growing a murderer within that unit is? The the media may think that is uh, commonplace. The Bible says otherwise. This is, from what I have seen in counseling before and after marriage, that the seeds of this violent outcome coming from divorce or separation from just those who don't even approach marriage. Those seeds are sown well in advance of their unions. And it, it, those seeds begin in a, uh, are begin to be cultivated in soil that fails to understand and submit to God's design for marriage. I've seen this over and over. When I say soil, I mean us. We're dirt. <laughs> We're dirt. And the seeds of divorce, the seeds of separation, the seeds of not understanding God's design for marriage begin within us. God is a family. Uh, and his design for human marriage, in that he shares who he is with those made in his image, his offering. Secondarily, Very few understand that first part, that God is a family. Also, very few know that they are made to relate to the Godhead, that every human being is made to make this connection, have a relationship with God. Um, Men and women, again, are created with a need to relate with God. In Job 32, verse 8, Elihu is addressing Job after all the others have tried to convince him. God, through Elihu, revealed that he put a spirit in man, a spirit Uh, That's not in any other living thing. A special spirit. Why? So that each human being can fellowship with God's spirit. That's the connection point. And that we we can actually relate to God at his level. That's an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. Um, Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 here. I've told you that we're going to be reading some scriptures uh, multiple times in this series, but in different contexts. This is one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. However, Paul, referring to himself, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. We've been speaking about 
these mysteries. This is a big one. Verse 8, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, connecting with our spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We've got that ability if we carry within us God's Holy Spirit. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given uh, to us by God. I I could go on there, but I'm going to stop there for sake of time. Knowing the things of man art music, spiritual concepts and ideas, love, joy, peace, patience, and understanding the value of all those things, he gave us the ability to understand that by that spirit that's within us. But too many today only want to see flesh and blood. Um, Knowing the things of a man are unique to the spirit in man. This makes us unique in God's creation, his offspring made in his image. Human destiny is much, much higher than the animals and the angels. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 here. Much higher. Although it's related to as being lower than them now, the implication in this section is telling us much more. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, But one testified in a certain place, what is man that you are mindful of? This is Psalm 8, David writing. Or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Small h, man. Verse 9. Humanity, I should say. But we see Jesus, who has made a little, who was made a little lower than the angels, same as us, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. There's that reference to being one again. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to to my brethren, family reference. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Family reference again. We are made, humanity is made, to share in a God-plane relationship that marriage is designed to replicate. Think of that. Make that connection in your own relationship with your spouse. As a loving father, God gave us the institution of marriage and the blessing of family that we might more fully comprehend the depth of his love, his love for us and his love in us. We are capable of this. Don't let the world tell you it's not. Don't fear God's holy institution. Simply enter into it and respect it for what it is. 
And let the scriptures and God's spirit in you guide you in this. When God's design for marriage is faithfully sought, there is great spiritual power in this union. Those who model their their marriage after the relationship between Christ and the church actually preach the gospel every moment of every day in the way they live, in the love they share for one another. And it's the single greatest example that any married couple can set for the church, for the younger ones in the church, for the, for the children who are growing into that, whether they have that home life or not. They see it's possible. That's the beauty of having couples like that at camps. They get to experience it. It's, it's also powerful from this perspective. If just one member in God's marriage covenant, that doesn't mean that you should go out and marry outside the faith. I'm not saying that. God doesn't say that. In fact, he strictly forbids it. But you have to make that choice. The church isn't going to punish you if you do that. But but God will understand and see that you don't understand what he's blessing you with. If just one member in God's marriage covenant is led by his spirit and word to understand and practice his design for marriage, God considers every member of that family holy. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 13 through 14. I'll just read this for you. You don't have to turn there. And woman, a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, that's a reference to being holy, set apart by the wife, the converted daughter of God. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. To God, holy, credible power that we we be little with man's view of God's holy institution. Marriage is a practice ground for developing God's nature and rearing godly offspring in the way. Again, not just the children, but the parents. You learn the way of the truth in love. It's not just the facts. It's not just the truth by itself. It's learned. It is absorbed in that loving relationship. But few who marry today know this, and they're getting even fewer, or they even care to know it. Why is it so important for humanity to emulate the relationship that God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, His Son, share in the Godhead? Because God wants believers to marry into His holy family. Third point. Few today... Understand that in the mystery of marriage, few know that humans are to be members of the God family. This is not preached in most professing Christian churches either, but it is revealed within God's church. This privilege uh, and necessity in every human to relate to God can only happen through our Savior Jesus Christ. And it happens in two ways. The church... In this age, the first fruits, in this age, you have taken on that responsibility to grow into his bride, a help meet for him spiritually forever. The bride of Christ will marry into the God family in their union with Christ. Then their offspring, those they will work with, that God will open their minds to see and understand, they will rear them, they will be born into the God family from their union. This is, these, this is the stage God has set up. It mirrors the plan of God. 
Look at Ephesians 5. I said we would go back there. Ephesians 5, we could not um, address this without reading this section. We'll begin reading in verse 22 and read through verse 31. I may go through 33 as well. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that says own husbands, not every man. And it says submit as Jesus Christ submitted to his father. Submission is a power of the Godhead. Satan, in his pride and arrogance and lies, wants us to think it is a weakness that only those who lead matter. Only the person at the top matters. That is not how God and the Logos have lived forever. And that's not the way they will live from here on. And if we will join and understand that family, we need to understand that submission is a power, a great power of peace. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, this is different for times when we the church has a very difficult time understanding what Christ wants to do so they can submit to it. They still still subject because he's Christ. He's husband. He's lead. That's his responsibility. Um, to Christ, so let the, the, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This has nothing to do with, ha- with what happens in bed. This has everything to do with what happens in our hearts, gentlemen, of putting her first and subjecting everything else in our lives to our care for her, to her well-being, our number one goal after our obedience, submission to God. That's lost today, too. In fact, that's considered weakness. Why are, you, why are you always with your wife? Why can't you go out with us anymore to the bars, to the ball games, to our pool hall? What are you, whipped? Yeah. <laughs> totally. And I love it. <laughs> that should be our answer. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, that's make her holy, and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. We need to lead in those in love, not force, not cajole, not push, not manipulate. That happens in the world, not within God's design for marriage. Verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You see this going back and forth here between something beyond just our union in the flesh, something it's pointing to and should be learning from. Verse 28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Then he says this, which we read earlier. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For that reason... All that's described here. This is what we're entering into. And if somebody isn't telling you this before you enter into it, and you think it's going to be happily ever after without following God's will for it, think again. Two shall become one flesh and learn what it means to live in one Godhead, in one family of God. 
Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage illustrates the union between Jesus Christ and the church. It is a holy bond. It's a loving symbol, a precious relationship that needs constant self-sacrificing care. And that's incumbent on both parties. Now let's go to Philippians 2 here. Philippians 2, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Paul here is reminding us of the Christ-like attitudes um, that find life within a godly marriage. Philippians 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, all of those should be embodied seen obviously in all of the marriages of everyone who's following his guidance. Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. I think it's cute that my wife and I have been married for 34 years or so. She knows what I'm thinking. She knows what I'm about to say before I say it. But in her great example of godly submission, she waits when she can. I've even seen and noticed, there's scientific evidence of this as well, the longer you've been married, the more you actually look alike. Uh, you see that growing over time. So if you don't like the way your spouse looks, watch out. Uh, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. This is the key here. The mind has to do with what's going on spiritually between us. You are in a spiritual union. You're two still physical beings. But God has blended your minds by his spirit that's in you. What, what a privilege that is. Can, can, can we recognize that and live like that beyond what we're simply seeing or dealing with in the physical every day? Um, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This applies outside of marriage as well. But what a beautiful opportunity we have within God's design for marriage to live this way, to grow in this way, and to set this example for others. Um. The people who live like this and recognize this within the opportunity of marriage, these are the these are the attributes that give life to a godly marriage and make it what God intended. The sacred marriage covenant calls on both members to commit themselves to God and to one another. By his spirit in us, God's spirit in us, a couple in his sacred union are to hold each other in very high esteem respect one another always, and continually give preference to the well-being of the other. How can our marriages within that understanding look any different? And though our physical marriages will end in this flesh as it returns to the earth, the spiritual character formed in those marriages will last forever. Let's finish here in Revelation 19. Looking forward, I told you in the beginning, I may have to convince you that marriage is not going to die. It can't. It won't. Uh, it is God's template for the salvation of humanity. 
and we need to see it as such. Revelation 19, we'll read verses 6 through 9. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of uh, almighty thunder, uh, almighty thunderings, of mighty thunderings, sorry, lost it in the page, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. This is, this is, after all of this is done, after all of this, this aging, tireless, destructive world is behind us, what happens? For the marriage of the Lamb has come in reference to Christ, and his wife has made herself ready. How do we ready ourselves as the bride of Christ? If we don't even understand that model within God's design for marriage. And wives, why would you think that your example in that, that model is, is less than your husband for any reason? When you're the model, he's supposed to be learning from. All the men cringe when we hear we're going to be a bride. Right? Not if you see that in your wife. Not if we respect her growth and development, not just in the power of submission, but in the ability to lead in that union. In that ways, we learn more as leaders, loving leaders, than we would otherwise. And verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are all those character traits that we just reviewed the very mind of Christ developing within that union. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. This marriage between Christ and the church will never end. In that respect, we'll be married for eternity to Jesus Christ. Humanity's reason for being is revealed in God's design for marriage and family. He gave this gift to humanity to prepare us for eternal life in the God family. As we understand these three critical points, God is a family that he wants every human to be part of. God is family. We are to be emulating him now, preparing for eternal positions in his family. And to that end, He gave humanity the holy institution of marriage so we could share and grow in the same love and unselfish devotion of the Godhead. It's a a colossal privilege, but also a very sobering responsibility. Sadly, again, most of all of humanity does not know this, doesn't understand these three things, and can't understand the value God placed in this great gift, this holy institution. And instead uh, instead of understanding that, which maybe they can't, but in some cases they can, but refuse. Instead, they reinvent or ridicule God's gift to suit their own selfish and short-sighted aims. But God will one day open their minds, and they will learn what it means to truly live happily ever after. That's not a a Disney motto. That's uh, God's intention living happily ever after in what is now for them the mystery of marriage. It should not be a mystery to us. Let's discuss this further at the uh, study. We'll start that at 2.30. You have some time to go out there, get your lunches in place, and I'll start that study at uh, 2.30.